Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're joined by Klaus Rehfeld, an excited founder and Danish business angel with eight active investments and who we couldn't help bring onto the show. We know we're the European VC, but sometimes you run into people who have something important and contrarian to say. Klaus has contrarian perspectives on three topics that we're going to dive deep on today. Data in health tech, founder-focused investments, and the business angel environment at large. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Klaus, welcome to the European VC. It's super nice to meet you today. How's everything? Everything's good. COVID has left its, its ugly hand on Denmark, at least. And <laughs> I think that the world is opening up. The sun is even shining outside the window now. Beautiful. So all is well. <laughs> Maybe, Klaus, let's start with giving uh, our listeners a quick rundown. Who is Klaus? What brought you to where you are today? I'm an economist by training. Left the university in the last century, late last century, started a company that did BI, business intelligence, for 20 years in the healthcare sector. They grew that to around 100 people, sold that off to an American company in 2015, spent a year thinking that I would be a great corporate guy, figured out that either corporate had to change or I had to change or we had to part. So I decided that I was probably more a startup type of person than an actual corporate person. Since 15, I've been doing some angel investments. In the beginning, I thought I was God's gift to everybody in the startup environment, realizing that unless you have a lot of money, you also have to bring some kind of insights if your investment should work. So I have, think, taken my toll on learning that startups is both money and uh, insights and hard work. So I'm now in, I think, seven different health tech startups where I'm investing either as chairman, board member, or advisor in each of those. In my everyday life, I'm a CEO of a consulting company or a Danish part of a consulting company. And then I'm doing a PhD on health data and trying to figure out why we're not better at using it, especially in Denmark and the Nordics, where I believe that if we haven't lost out on the opportunity, we might be losing out on one of the greatest opportunities in the last 20 years if we're not starting to use all the knowledge that is in the Nordic countries around health. That's exactly why we bring you on, Klaus, <laughs> because of your very strong investment thesis around data and healthcare. So I'd love for you to dive a bit deeper on that and tell us exactly what is it you believe is such a good, strong force in the Nordic countries and why should VCs pay more attention there? In the Nordic countries, we have three things that's really interesting. One is trust. So the ability to actually gather data on health is super high in all of the Nordic countries, especially Denmark where we have this uh, personal identifier that's been around since the 60s. So our ability to gather or to combine data on the total population is amazing. So in essence, we have a total data set on a total population of 5 to 6 million people for the last 40 years, which in essence should be a cornerstone of all development of both pharma and health tech in the future. 
Then we have a fairly close connection between uh, universities and the hospital sector and a very high level, I think, technology and educational level in Denmark. And the Nordics, I think that the Nordics can be taken as a whole, but Denmark especially. The point is that we have a very small market. It's actually a strength because as a laboratory for solving problems, if you have 5 million or 20 million people, it's not really a big market in any sense. The CEO of the larger pharma companies doesn't know the revenue of Denmark because it's so small. That could be a bad thing, but it's really good because then the risk of doing trials or trial and error stuff in a Danish or Nordic market is, at least from a financial perspective, very limited. So that means that we, we have the opportunity to create great solution. And if we make sure that they're scalable in the technology, we have we have an opportunity to test out and even to mark in a world where the financial risks are limited for the larger companies, then bring that to either the US market or to the totality of EU. From a structural point of view, I think that the Nordics are super interesting. And I think also that at least the life science strategy came out from the, the government in Denmark a couple of months ago, at least say that they wanted to do it. We need to see it happen. But there are some trends going that direction. So now we need people to do it to show that it can actually be done and that the growth potential that I believe in is existing. You're saying that there's an opportunity, mm -hmm. that it's interesting, that it has potential. Why do you think uh, no one has really seized it in a scalable manner yet? The problem seems to be from the idea to the market. At least in the companies I've seen in Denmark, there's a kind of a go-to-market process from idea to market for the, on at least five years. And that means that the investment thesis is that you need to agree to a, a set of metrics where the value inflection points are different than just revenue or user uptake. And I think that a lot of the investors don't have that metrics in them. You could say, but that's not true because you have the bio industry, the bio process, but there you have a long-standing story saying you want to find the molecule and if you find the molecule in 15 years, you get your return on a X100 or X1000. We're kind of in a limbo on whether it's a tech, meaning that you're in the market in 18 months starting to do revenue and then you have this user growth that's organic yeah. compared to a bio thing that takes 15 years. But then if you get into the market, you have a vertical value process. So one thing is that the structure of the technology and the structure of the market is different. The second thing is that this, the fear of sharing data has been, I mean, you know, the GDPR laws and the fear of privacy data has been eminent or big. So a lot of the discussions on why should we use data has been used in a negative sense. And it seems to be moving to a more positive thinking right now, both due to the fact that people are actually using their phone for everything. Also that we see that the world of healthcare in the Western world, probably also in third world, cannot be sustainable if we don't start using data and using algorithms for decision-making stuff. So I think that a very, very important insight is that most illnesses are global. So you don't have a local Danish illness. I might be able to find one, but the idea is that any solution you have to an illness has a potential global market. So you just have to find a solution to a problem. And then you might strain that into different market structures of a Western world and third world or something, but it's a true global solution you're looking for. I think that that thinking it tends to be underserved, at least in, in the Nordics, because there's a lot of thinking about how can you do this? If you can do it in Copenhagen, you might also be able to do it on Stockholm, but that's kind of about it. But all illnesses are global. I would assume that COVID is good for health tech investments. So you have this great data 
you have these capabilities in the societies across the Nordics, you have a global market and you have an unlimited risk at testing out stuff from a market point of view, yeah. seen from a big company point, uh, perspective. Yeah. Well, so, so these four things put into one bucket. Let me clarify one thing because I'm curious because you said that health tech is kind of in this limbo. You're kind of in this limbo between tech mm-hmm. and then bio. And it's yeah. kind of, you, you don't really compare it to either, but you compare it to both to some extent. Yeah. I'm more familiar with nomenclatures that kind of separate between biotech, medtech, digital health. And, you know, as you said, the value inflection points are on the bio extreme, right, are driven by regulatory processes. So yeah. it's challenging, but super well defined. <laughs> right? And then on the other side, it's actually cash. So it's easy to measure. Yeah. When you think of these different verticals, what do you think are the commonalities between the area in which you operate, for example, to med tech compared to what are the things that are just completely different, impossible to compare? The way I see it, med tech is a bit Closer, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a medtech data versions of medtech. The opportunity is really that, given that you go into what I would call high-level health tech, because which might be stupid, but I'm I'm defining wellness tech as one type of health tech. Could be running apps, could be yeah. kind of nudging, but no evidence based, and all responsibility on the use is given to the user. If you take at the total other end, you could say implants like pacemakers. You would really like to have some professional people making sure that the pacemaker still works after it's put in. And you really would like somebody to put it in who's, you don't get a YouTube video and a box and then pacemaker and say, hey, you can go home now at your kitchen and implant. And a lot of it has to do with responsibility. Who takes the responsibility? And the point here is that I'm operating in the somebody else take the responsibility area, meaning the professionals. So because there's a lot of health wellness tech and that market is super hard to be in. If you hit it big, you hit it really big, but there will be a lot of people doing the same and the access to market quite short. In my world, we have the same type of problems that you've described in bio or medtech that we need some confirmation that it works. We need some evidence. But on the other hand, if we make it in my version of health tech, we limit the costs of uh, treating people to hopefully close to zero, because the algorithms will be trained in a controlled environment, closer and closer to an environment where you can let people take their own decisions based on what the algorithms give you. It's kind of like self-driving cars, right? They have been developing self-driving cars, and we have self-driving cars. And with a very high certainty, the amounts of problems that will arise if everybody is in a self-driving car will be much slower than we see today, but who takes the risk when something goes wrong? So you have all these thresholds that you need to overcome in order to get into the market. So I'm in the professional healthcare market. From a structural perspective, this is kind of where we want to start the revolution of healthcare because we need to get doctors to understand that they can be supported by algorithms, not as a now we kill you off as a profession, but now we support your ability to create more health. And we make sure that people trust the outcomes of the algorithms to a level where we actually know that it's on the same or better as if you talk to a doctor. So that's where I operate. It's super interesting. It's super important. And it's kind of one of the most important things, I think, in the world in order to create a more equal economy. I mean, green is big. I get that. But health is kind of one of the drivers that has been shown for the last hundred years that if you go to a society that's closer from a third world to a first world, health is one of the needs you have or the expectations of the population. So if we cannot drive down the cost, some of the quality problems will still be there. When you're speaking to other investors, you have like archetype 
deals or startups or projects that you talk about and would you care to share? Because it's really interesting to understand your thinking and making it super concrete with specific examples. In my world, I'm a business angel and I have this very, very specific focus. So my experience is with people talking in my area. I won't say that I'm kind of understanding all other markets. Yeah. That would be silly. But my experience is that VCs that I'm talking to has built over the last 20 years or so a set of metrics where they evaluate companies. And then they have these metrics that has a lot to do either in bio with scientific proven records that are their value and fiction points, phase one, phase two, phase three stuff. Or you have the tech guys that looks into a metric called revenue or user uptake. Being in this specific area, I think that the archetypes I'm talking to other people with the money metrics at the moment. They do seem to grasp and understand and even recognize that the story is probably true. We need to go there. We need to drive down the marginal cost of healthcare. We need to, on a macro level, they agree. I think that if you look to the US, I mean, you see Microsoft buying companies or Amazon buying PillPack. I mean, there's proof that there are some investment capabilities in that, but the VCs tend to be not able or not willing to take a step back from the revenue stream in my world. Some of the investment problems that I think we have in the health tech area is true that people don't get the value inflection points. And then you should look at the startups also that are super bad at telling or proving the value inflection points from a, let's agree that this is better than this type of discussion. So I think that the VCs don't get or don't want to take the risk on the non-financial metrics at the moment. I think that that is a limitation to health tech because then it becomes something that they think happens on the universities and then we can invest when they are in the market and nobody gets into the market because of the thresholds unless you have money to get into the market. You get the point. Is that answer to your question? Yeah, she brought up a new question, (laughs) (laughs) which is, you know, for example, um, EIT Health is a great organization that's doing awesome job. And, And my understanding is that they fill a really interesting gap in the vertical, because they're kind of in between that grant TTO university kind of financing and the VC money or the the first institutional equity money. What do you see them playing a role and these type of organizations playing a role in your space? One of my investments has gotten an EIT uh, investment. It was coupled with a potential to get a convertible note afterwards. So you get soft funding in that one and then you have... uh, what our experience is that they're not fully mature in the EIB. So the process has been kind of cumbersome on getting the investment part of it. I think they have two different organizations trying to figure out a way to, but in theory, and definitely also from what I've seen, is that EIT in this collaboration part is super important or yeah. could be super important. And I think, as you say, because they have this soft funding component, the risk willingness is really high. And then you have the investor component coupled. And then we get back to one of my thesis or Kephest, it's called in Danish. <laughs> yeah. Probably doesn't translate very well. Okay. <laughs> but what I've seen in Denmark, in the Nordic, is that we have, this might be a bit controversial, but we have too much soft funding. I mean, it's too easy to get access to soft funding. The problem with soft funding is that the tasks that you are delivering on are based on some kind of project plan that you describe in the beginning of the soft funding and then you deliver on these points with no limitations on whether you are a success in the market. And then, so the EIB, EIT connections are good. It's a great yeah. thinking because then you get some kind of a business proposition put into the idea. 
but we need to have more focus on getting solutions to the market, at least from the startups I know. You should still make good products and you should still make solutions that are strong. But since we are in health tech, it's tested all the time. It's very hard to get a beta version to in a health tech environment. I mean, we don't do betas because then we kill people and it kind of doesn't work that way. We need to test out stuff anyway. But the focus is in the soft funding part to make a project and then the VC part to make a business. The last part is lacking focus, I think, in the health tech area at the moment. The problem is also that we need more than just a million corner or half a million euros in order to get into the market. So you cannot really take the business angel environment in Denmark and make the business angels get you to the market. So you need to get the VCs or EIB to invest into these. And at the same time, it's fairly easy to get access to the soft funding. So you have a lot of companies doing kind of a project, solving the project, seeking the next set of soft funding that needs to be focusing on a project instead of getting to the market. So it's kind of, we're kind of in a mess here. We need less risk-free capital, really. Sounds strange when I say it, but not in terms of amounts, but in terms of percentage of the investment parts. I think that's a really big problem in the Nordics. The business part of the investments are too small, too limited. And maybe that's because the soft funding is fairly easy to get. So you have the companies that can still survive on soft funding for five, six, seven, eight years finding the next million in another grant somewhere instead of getting to the market. So I think the EIB, EIT thing, that's structurally really, really good. I think they have to practice on making sure that the connection between the soft funding and the VC funding, it should be easier to get to the VC funding, but the reasons to get the funding structure, it all must have some kind of commercial thinking into it. Yeah. I'm totally for it. I think it's really, really good. And I, I believe that when they get on track, it's a very strong vehicle. You mentioned a work that is very close to your thesis as well. You said cumbersome. And I know that in your perspective, some founders can be quite cumbersome <laughs> when yeah. you're working with them because you have the position that too many founders in Europe and Denmark and the Nordics are too laid back and not working as hard as they should. I love all my investments and I think they're really, really good. I don't think that they're lazy in, as such. I, I spent a year in California on Berkeley uh, at the Center for Entrepreneurship. And I met people over there where they understood that the people they were competing against were people who were willing to live in cardboard boxes for five years in order to make it. That is not as such an interesting world to start to create. I mean, it's not like people need to live in cardboard boxes, but I think that being from a welfare society, we have this opportunity in the welfare society to say, if we don't succeed, we can always do something else. If we have all these self-funding opportunities and we have this welfare society, meaning that to some extent we lack fear, of being not successful. People work a lot of hours, I think, and I believe that they really struggle, but I think they struggle from a position saying, if it's not going to be my way, it's not going to be. Most of my startups actually have people coming from abroad being part of the development teams. And that's really, really great because then you introduce a culture where people are risking something. If you sit in Brazil and you're part of a Danish startup and do development, then you risk something. The culture and the universities are still that if we don't succeed, we just do something else. I like all the guys. They're really good and they might be annoyed with me saying this, but the risk of not being a success is too small. That ends up being, let's not bring it to the market. Let's not take the chance. Let's not, because we can do all this before we do it. And then we are, then we are sure that we are in control all the time. 
and then we don't get to the world. Very few Danish companies crash, but very few Danish companies become global successes. And it's it's kind of a, let's keep the safe solution, creating a safe solution that we can bring to the market next to us. And then at some point, this will take a lot of time. And then somebody else from China or from India or from California then brings something that in essence takes us out of the market, but we can still be in Denmark because we've been here for five years or 10 years. I think that the willingness to risk stuff is too limited. And then you have this laziness of saying, but I want a work day that looks like everybody else's work day because I am allowed to do that. And if I don't do that, my startup can die and then I can get another job. If you meet the guys I'm working with, I don't believe that it's their basic thinking, but it seems to be... Of course, experience uh, <laughs> a lot of startups that you don't invest in. Yeah, yeah. And I know for a fact, many of the startups you turn down are because not because of the lack of idea, but it's, mm-hmm. it's the lack of ambition and world domination yeah, vision. Exactly. <laughs> exactly what you're saying is that I've decided I'm not investing in anything that doesn't tell me a global story. I mean, if people come and say I'm really good at this and can be big in the Nordics, it's a non-interesting game because if you're solving a global problem and only want to be big in the Nordics, then somebody else will come. because then the Nordics is part of the global. And even if you're success in the Nordics, somebody else will have the rest of the world as their market. That's silly when you, in essence, when you are in health tech, create something that should be exponentially scalable. That means that you don't make the right choices. You don't... I'm a big fan of the welfare state, but the welfare state also creates security. And security is good, but it also creates a level of laziness that to some extent, I think, will limit our ability to create the solutions that we should create. Because, I mean, you have Novo Nordisk, you have uh, Lego, you have Grundfos, you have, but they're all 50, 60 years old companies. The Lego guys, but the idea that you can make something out of plastic that everybody wants is kind of really, really amazing. And you have Novo, which that kind of said a diabetes is probably big and it's going to be even bigger. So that's really interesting. But you have one Danish company has become a thousand people. It's a tech company, but most of their revenue comes from the Danish government. I mean, we're kind of lacking these successes. The other stories are like Unity and, and, and the companies that move from Denmark somewhere else. So the guys who want to have wealth of a nation, they're moving. I mean, that's sad because we have all these great opportunities to create really great solutions, especially in health tech. So I think that the laziness also comes down to a cushion of, of safety, which is good. But then also when you're fighting people or wanting to compete with people who don't have that question, their willingness to actually do stuff are higher. And I think that we should implement a higher level of risk-taking type of understanding, at least in the health tech area in Denmark. I totally agree. I actually don't have those numbers with me. <laughs> During my master thesis, I looked into some of um, data behind entrepreneurship and uh, need-based entrepreneurship versus opportunity-based entrepreneurship. And it was quite astonishing that when you have the need, to mm-hmm. be entrepreneurial, you tend to be more successful. <laughs> and it's what you're saying, right? I mean, of course, it's kind of a balance because I spent a year in California and I think that a lot of the American system is broken. I mean, as a country, but as a basis for people who want to be successful and have world domination or something, it seems to be more efficient than Copenhagen. It's quite effective. Nothing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> motivates like hunger. I don't know. Klaus, we are running out of time and we always like to finish our episodes with a quick fire round. That means 30 to 60 second answer questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. So first question, what's common advice you often hear given to founders that you strongly disagree with? That the team is everything. It's not that the team doesn't matter, but I met nobody who had a great team and no ideas 
that seemed to be interesting. The thinking that you don't need a problem or a an idea. I mean, you need a strong team, but that the team is everything and the idea that, that a team can do anything. It's kind of a wrong analysis because everybody seems to be pivoting around an idea. So if the idea is not good enough, the team is not really interesting. I hear that and I don't agree. I particularly love thinking of it as team and market and team and market problem. And then picturing the entrepreneur as Godzilla that will develop into, mutate into whatever it needs to mutate into to yeah. fix that problem. <laughs> and and in yeah. that sense, as long as you couple the team to the problem, then it's all good. Then you can say team is everything, but you definitely need that coupling. Second uh, question, Klaus, what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started angel investing? The idea that getting money also creates solutions. I thought when I began to invest in stuff that the idea of getting people money also led to the solution. We need to have a plan coupled with the money. We need to be better than in health tech. Getting the money doesn't give you the solution. So I think that to some extent, we need to be better at understanding what the plan is or the goals are. We need to fail and we need to mess up, but we need to understand what we are failing from. So the counterintuitive thing is that just getting money doesn't get you to the market. My favorite deck slides are the ones that have a donut pie. Yeah. And they say, what's the money for? And like 30, 30, 60. And you can yeah. copy all of them and they're all the same. Yeah. <laughs> There's to some extent a crossover process here where we think as startups that we need to tell the investors your donut thing because the plan is actually a bit complicated. The investors say, but what are you going to use it for? And when you use the plan, it's going to be too risky because it's now it's a plan. So we're kind of in limbo in that discussion at the moment. Final question of the quickfire round. What's next for Klaus Rehfeld? Two of the companies I'm in, I've left as a chairman. Now I've just become a board member, which is really interesting because that in my world, that's a success because we have taken now my capabilities as a chairman and shifted it with somebody else who assumed to have a higher capability. And that's proving that somebody else actually believes the work I've done. So next is actually to follow through on trying to get these companies to the market and spending kind of most of my uh, investment thinking time on getting everybody to understand that health tech is where everybody should put their money for the next five years. So anyone, anywhere who wants to talk health tech and investment and potentials, I would love to talk to these guys. With that said, I think we should end the episode and we will definitely be reiterating this call to anyone listening. So Klaus, thanks a billion for joining us today. We had so much fun. Thank you for having the opportunity. And I think what you guys are doing a great work. And I think that you're thinking on how to connect people with the solutions, money and capabilities. Keep on doing that work, guys. Thank you, Klaus. Klaus. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.